It's time to set aside the superficial. It's time to go deeper. It's time to engage in truth. Here's John Bornstein. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome back to Engage in Truth. This is John Bornstein. I'm the senior pastor of Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley right here at Colorado Springs. And I'm so excited that you are tuning in. We are continuing in our study of the book of Revelation. The last couple weeks, you may have noticed, we had deviated a bit, obviously, with the Resurrection Sunday message. And then last week, I had the privilege of introducing you to Creation Station, a ministry here in Colorado Springs that is producing 3D-printed prosthetics and sending those to children all around the world. And uh, we were just so privileged to have Dakota Welch in the studio with us last week. So uh, we are back on track here in the book of Revelation, and I am so thrilled to be in this particular section for a number of reasons, because there is really so much hope and joy in this chapter, as all of the book of Revelation is. I know you've been through some tough parts with me already, uh, and there are a number of hard-to-read areas of the book of Revelation because the magnitude of it can feel so overwhelming at times. But this particular section, I've titled this area, All Things New, because of the content that we're about to read, that this section is about all things new, that God has a plan. And so you've been tarrying with me for quite some time in this journey through the book of Revelation. And it really reminds me of a flight that I took not too long ago. If For those of you who are listening who have ever done this, you've taken perhaps an international flight. And I went to Israel a few years ago, and I was seated next to a particular gentleman that, um, for those of you who are, who are sports fans that, uh, that follow particular uh, various athletics and so forth, uh, the, the National Basketball Association has a team that's sort of like the farm team for the Oklahoma City Thunder. And one of those players was seated next to me and we're at the very back of the plane. And yes, he was on his way to Israel to participate in the Israel League. And as cool as that sounds... The problem is, is here we're like in the rock pile section of the plane, and this poor guy with his long legs, and he is trying to find space, his knee is like bent up against the back of the chair and his other knee out into the, the aisle way, and, and here we're surrounded on both sides by crying babies, and all of this amounted to this cramped, aroma-filled, loud flight all the way to Israel, yes, all 12 wonderful hours that awaited us. And uh, you know what? <laughs> it was worth it. it yeah, just getting to Israel for that first time, and I've been since been back, and we're going to go again. And, and for those of you who are listening and want to uh, engage in going with us to Israel at Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley, we are putting together yet another trip to Israel next year. So be, uh, be on the lookout for that information forthcoming. But the this this trial this uh, this duration of time uh, that that was well, you can almost count every minute as we were waiting these full 12 hours to land in Israel it was worth it the final destination was worth the pain and life is like a long flight at times life can sometimes only be endured in light of the destination and these passages here that we're about to read in Revelation chapter 21 teach us that the destination is worth the trip. 
If you have your scripture with me, you can turn to Revelation 21, verses 1 to 8. Uh, those of you who are driving, just listen in and go there at another time uh, and enjoy the, these words as I read them now and study this for yourselves. Be a good Berean and go read this when you get a chance. But here I'll read it to you, verses 1 to 8, Revelation chapter 21. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake, which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So number one that we're to draw from this is that we're to prepare for our destination. Now, and let me reread that again here. He says, now I saw a new heaven... And a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Heaven and earth, this is a biblical designation for the entire universe. You go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 on that. So John sees a transformation of perhaps the entire universe. The first heaven and earth will be passed away. Go back to Matthew 24, 35 on that. This does not mean an, an extinction or an annihilation, but rather a transformation. It will be a dramatic change in quality from one level to a higher form. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Paul writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new kainos creation. The old things passed away. Parerkomai. Parerkomai. And behold, all things have become new. This doesn't mean that when we were converted to Christ, we ceased to be. I was not annihilated altogether, nor were you, but rather we were transformed from the inside out. And likewise, the heavens and earth will be radically altered and gloriously reborn. This, this present universe will undergo a vast renovation, a rebirth or remaking, if you will. In fact, just go to Acts chapter 3, verse 21 on that. Here's what we read in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 to 13. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, it, it, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? 
Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The result of this renovation will be this new earth that will be our eternal home. So what I'm saying is heaven is not our final home. Your citizenship is there. It's like a registry, according to Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 to 21, that this new earth and its new city will be our home. That's not a misprint when you go and read that. This is the kingdom of heaven, Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, as the new city comes down from heaven to the earth. So the Bible teaches it will be in heaven for an appointed time. You go back to Revelation chapter 7, you see multitudes praising God at his throne, and we will then rule with Christ on the earth, according to Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 to 6. And we finally, we're going, to, we're going to experience then this earth being fully transformed into a perfect state, and we will live on this new earth, according to Revelation 21.5. So the earth goes through two changes after the judgments of Revelation. The climate, the terrain, animal behavior will be changed during the millennium, during the thousand-year reign of Christ then changed radically thereafter. That's why when you go back and read Isaiah 11, 65, and 66, they can all read very similarly, uh, but they're describing the glory during the reign of Christ and then partially describing the transition into the coming new heavens and new earth. Specifically, you read in Isaiah 65, 17, and 66, 22. So this teaching startles some people because they have wrongly assumed that believers will spend their lives in the sky in heaven, it doesn't, certainly doesn't mean that we won't have uh, limitless boundaries. We certainly, uh, I would suspect, that we're going to be able to explore the fullness of God's creation. However, the Bible teaches that man's ultimate destiny is an earthly one, that, that we will one day return to God's original plan as revealed in the Garden of Eden, and this time there'll be no more tree of knowledge of good and evil. We'll talk more about that tree of, of, of life and the tree of knowledge and of good and evil uh, in the coming weeks. Now, now most Americans are probably familiar with some of those TV shows, like uh, Extreme Home Makeover, for example. Um, you know, some of these shows have come and gone, but that one in particular comes to mind. It was remarkable how motivated people could could work together to remodel and restore some rundown home in in seven days. And it's also moving to see the sheer joy of those who are receiving this gift. Can you fathom then what the God of this universe can do when he remodels and restores our eternal home? It's going to be staggering, and we're going to actually talk about that to some extent here on the program. Not today, but in the next coming weeks, we're going to be talking about what the new Jerusalem looks like. And when you start to put the measurements to it, it is awesome. So for the past 2,000 years, Jesus has been preparing a place for you and I that will stagger our imagination. You go to John chapter 14, verse 3, and Revelation 21, 9 to 21 that we're going to get into. And I don't think that there are going to be the proper words to describe our jubilation in all of this. Now, let's just look at this in more detail. Verse 1b, it also says that there's no more sea. And, and sometimes that can be a little alarming for folks who like to live by the ocean. 
that they, uh, they enjoy the waves come pouring in. Now, you got to remember, John is exiled on the island of Patmos at this time. He's separated from his church by the Aegean Sea. And so for John, the sea was a painful barrier and a, and a wall of isolation, if you will. The, the sea was some frightful and fearsome thing, an awesome monster, if you will, even a watery grave. They had no compass to guide them in the open sea, certainly using the stars and such as navigation. But on a cloudy day, their ships were absolutely lost without the stars or the sun to guide them. And their frail ships were at the mercy of the the storms, the ocean's fearsome, angry storms. In fact, the the Northern Shipwrecks database, for example, contains 65,000 ship loss records for North America over the past 500 years alone. And the Dictionary of Disasters at Sea, well, stating this from 1969, it lists some 12,542 sailing ships and war vessels that were lost between 1824 and 1962. So according to this Museum of Archaeology in Lisbon, some 850 ships have gone to the bottom of the seas surrounding the Azores since 1522. So it's estimated that as many as 100 million people have died in the oceans alone since the first century AD. And this does not include the flood or 4,000 years of sea voyages and wars before Christ. I read not too long ago in an article that was featured in Vanity Fair, not that I'm a a big reader of that particular uh, publication, but they had an article that was talking about the doomed voyage of the El Faro, which was a 790-foot-long cargo ship sailing in in some Category 3 hurricane 430 miles southeast of Miami, and it killed all 33 crew members. And the article stated that a major merchant ship goes down somewhere in the world every two to three days. So the sea represents a vast barrier for nations, continents, and people groups. The sea is a separator of mankind around the globe, even a destroyer of human life. But in this scenario, that is to be no more. No more geographical barriers to separate us. No more violent sea storms to bury victims in watery graves. God will renovate the world as we know it. So this doesn't mean that there won't be bodies of water for life to roam, but not the seas as we know them today. Things will be very different. Now, when we look to the new Jerusalem, like the bride of Christ, let's look to verse 2 of Revelation chapter 21. He says, Then I, John, saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, is in contrast to the former Jerusalem. As the old Jerusalem was Jesus Christ's capital during the millennium, so the new Jerusalem will be his capital for eternity. This is a place that our God is preparing, that our Lord is preparing. John chapter 14, verses 1 to 3. This city is everything the bride is. The bride is everything the city is. In this simile, Christ is the husband, and it is a glorious relationship. The most glorious aspect of eternity is that God the Father will be present with his people. You go to verse 3, and it says, And I heard a loud voice from heaven say, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. So two times in this verse, the Lord states that he will dwell among his people. The supreme blessing of this new Jerusalem is that God will dwell among his people. Talk about intimate fellowship with him as we read in Ezekiel 37, 27, and 48 
35. So what makes heaven heavenly is God's presence. So another glorious aspect of eternity is that the evil and suffering that we know today will be absent. In verse 4 we read, And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. Did you catch that? Nor death, nor sorrow, nor crying. I wish I could just read that all day. Because how many of us are familiar with that sort of of pain and anguish, perhaps even recently in your life as you're listening to this right now, this will be absent in this kingdom. There'll be no more pain for the former things have passed away. You go back to Revelation chapter 7, verse 17, Isaiah 25, 8, where you just examine these texts and you go, this that we know to be the normative in this kingdom of men during this day and age That will no longer be the standard. That will no longer be what is familiar. These things will be absent. This reference to wiping away tears highlights God's compassion for his people. Sorrow, death, and pain will all end along with tears, mourning, and crying that result from them. This is the final reversal of the curse that we see in Genesis chapter 3. And and note that the removal of tears will take place after the judgments including the judgment seat of Christ. So the first things are the former things, the things associated with the old creation. Now we go to verse 5. Here's what we read. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. So John turned from describing the new Jerusalem briefly to describe some of God's utterances. And he says, behold, this is introduces a special pronouncement, namely that God will bring a new creation into existence. He assures us that his words are true and faithful. And then he's about to say these powerful words, it is done, the beginning and the end. Let's read verse six. And he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. So the judgments of the tribulation in verse 17 of chapter 16 and the whole old creation stood accomplished as we read in verse 5. And Jesus said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Alpha was the first letter of the Greek alphabet and suggests that the Lord God Almighty is the initiator of creation, the source and origin of all things. Go back and read Colossians 1, 15 to 20 on that. And Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet, and it points to the fact that he is the end of everything. He is the goal or aim of all things. And go back to Isaiah 44, 6 on that. So Revelation begins with this declaration from Jesus Christ and is ending with the same declaration. We go and read Revelation 1, 8. We read, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come the Almighty. Powerful words. This is the second time John records Jesus saying, it is done. It is finished. This is the same author whom God used, the same pen that he selected, who was also there when Jesus Christ gave his life on the cross. John chapter 19, verses 28 to 30, we read these words along with Revelation chapter 21, verse 6. Salvation was made possible by way of the cross, and now the whole earth is redeemed as a result of the work of Jesus. His promise of abundant satisfaction for the thirsty is metaphorical, symbolizing his ability to meet the deepest needs of his people. Go to Isaiah 55, 1 and John chapter 4 on that, where we read 
from Jesus Christ where he says, we go to John chapter 4 and John chapter 7, whoever drinks the water I give will never thirst again. And if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. So Jesus Christ is the one who gives the water that will never allow a man to thirst again. It is the the truth, everlasting life. It is only found in Jesus Christ our Lord. This is an invitation to anyone, including believers, to come to God to receive freely from him what is truly satisfying. Now, overcomers then have a relationship with God. Look at this in verse 7. He says, He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. See, the overcomer will inherit the blessings of the new creation. The phrase, I will be his God, and he will be my son, this is defined elsewhere as a statement of special honor not of salvation. The Davidic covenant promised to David's son Solomon, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me in 2 Samuel 7, 14. So the intent of this phrase was to signify a special intimate relationship. It's a special honor, if you will, associated even with the Davidic covenant, including a privileged intimacy and ruling authority. So a person can be a son and not necessarily behave as a son. A true son reflects a life of obedience. We go back to Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 23, and chapter 11, verse 4 on that. So a willingness to yield to the leading of the Holy Spirit is a characteristic of the children of God. You go to Romans chapter 8, 14, we read, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. A story that comes to mind in 1871 of the Chicago fire, Dwight L. Moody's house burned down. And as Moody was surveying the ruins, a friend said, I hear you lost everything. Well, said Moody, he said, you understand wrong. I have a good deal more left than I lost. His friend asked, what do you mean? You're not a rich man. Mr. Moody then opened his Bible and read to him Revelation 21, verse 7. He who overcomes shall inherit these things, and I will be his God. So in contrast to the overcomer, the Lord utters these frightening words that come in verse 8. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. This verse serves as a description of the individuals who were tossed into the lake of fire as a result of the great white throne judgment that we covered in chapter 20, verses 11 to 15. It concerns the eternal sinfulness of unbelievers. Go to John 8, 24 on that. So unbelievers die in a state of sinfulness, and forever they remain as sinners. Believers, however, they do not remain in a state of sinfulness because they are justified by faith, according to Romans 4, 1 to 8, and Romans 8, 33 to 34. So there will be no more sinners and no more sin in the new heavens and the new earth. According to 1 John 3, 2, when he, Jesus, is revealed, he shall, we shall be like him. So, so the reason that we must book our destination or prepare with the destination is mine in mind is because the costs are high in the now. Heaven or hell awaits every person. The choice is yours. Will you trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ to secure your destination? If so, you will spend eternity with God. And John's initial interest in the New Jerusalem was in its citizens. In chapter 21, verses 1-8, we're told that, that those who inhabit the New Jerusalem, as well as those who are excluded. And when we come to verses 9-21, to we're going to find out through 
this greater revelation given to John, a closer look at the city itself. So we're going to cover that next week. We're going to get into the description that is given to us of the new Jerusalem. And it is amazing. It's awesome. It's breathtaking. So I want you to, to you know, bookmark this on your, your calendar to tune in next week because we're going to be covering the biblical description for the new Jerusalem. And if that doesn't get you excited, I don't know what will. And the purpose of it is that so we are putting our eyes on the prize that as we go through trial and tribulation in the now, is right now we may struggle in relationships, ailments of the flesh, maybe even struggling to find a way to pay next month's bills, that these things no longer are going to be shackles to us as we overcome through Jesus Christ and receive this inheritance that's indescribable, a blessing that is beyond words that we get to enjoy forever and ever in the presence of Almighty God who will be walking with us. This is really to keep our eyes on the prize here because everything we've read through the book of Revelation is quite uh, startling at times. And so we can get overwhelmed by it. We can, It's daunting. And so we can even just, uh, you know, put, tuck our head in the sand and not be intentional in the now. And the intent then is that we read these powerful words and we go, I am going to be so motivated. I need a fire inside of me like Jeremiah had in Jeremiah chapter 20. He needed a, a spark, a flame inside of him to, to stir him and move him to action, not to remain in his comfort zone, but to, to push him forth for the glory of God. And we often need that as well. And I believe that Revelation is is written with that intent in mind, that we are to be stirred out of our comfort zone, moved to action, becoming change agents in the culture, because people need to see the light, hear the truth coming from your lips, coming from your actions, as you are a an ambassador for Jesus Christ. And so I hope you've been encouraged today. There's a lot more to cover here as we go through verses 9 to 21 of chapter 21 in the book of Revelation. It's an exciting study. If you've missed any of our prior teachings on this, any of the study we've been doing here in the book of Revelation, go to calvaryfountain.com. And there at calvaryfountain.com, you'll find the videos of all the previous sessions. You can get the sermon notes. Uh, we're putting together a, a booklet even for all of this. To, uh, it's more than a booklet. It's going to be several hundred pages, most likely, on this study of Revelation. And uh, we want to equip you with that as well. So please go to calvaryfountain.com. This is a ministry of Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley. Again, I hope you've been blessed. Services are at 10 a.m. on Sunday. We would love to see you there. God bless you.